Hey everyone, it's Sam White Owl, back again for what may be the last time, at least for a while. It's sad to have to say goodbye again, but sometimes unexpected things happen, and you must adjust. For those of you who haven't heard about my recent life situation, you can listen to the beginning of my letter on the Amikook for more details. But, to give a quick recap, my friend William is in a bad way, and he's not going to be with us for much longer. He has a daughter named Rain, and her mother passed away earlier as well, meaning that without William she won't have either of her parents. So my girlfriend, Serena, and I have decided to adopt Rain, and we've been in Australia for the last long while spending time with both William and Rain, getting things all set up. It's been very busy, and now that we're taking in a little girl, I'm going to put my focus on being a good adopted parent. I'm also probably going to retire here soon or at least transition to a less active combat role because things are just very different when you have a kid around. Plus the fact that I'm getting too old for that anyways. Again, the beginning of my Amikook letter gives a little more info on this whole situation, but that's the basic lowdown on things and hopefully it helps you understand why I must go away again. Not to mention that it is not as if writing these letters is a job that's making me money. So it takes a lot of time and effort and I also want to put that towards my remaining career as a hunter and being there for Serena, Rain, and all of our different animal friends. A lot of people want my nephew or mom to write letters of their own, but I doubt they will. For that matter, I don't expect any other capital H hunter to write in. So this is pretty much it, unless I get a chance to come back, which I may be able to do here and there. It's been a wonderful ride though, and I'm grateful for it. So I'll have more to say later. But for now, I'll get right into the final Q&A section. As usual, I obviously can't get to everything, but I'll try to hit a few of the ones that I've seen the most. What's the best melee weapon to fight against cryptids? <laughs> Honestly, this is a tough one. Honestly, I would say nothing because you never want to really get in that close to combat with a monster. It's very much the last resort. But of course, things often don't work out the way we want. I can't really give a best choice of melee weapon because it often comes down to personal preference and skill, as well as the cryptid you'd be engaging. Records from the old days talk about how hunters and our predecessors used to use pretty much anything they could. Maces, axes, swords, spears, hammers, and more. These guys would often work in large groups and when they did, pole arms like spears or pikes were a common choice probably because you could form a ring or a wall around these weapons and push back a monster effectively that way. With modern guns, melee weapons are much less common, but every hunter that I know carries at least one knife and usually more. Knives are just a useful tool in general outside of combat, but they are handy for melee because they are easy to use and can strike quickly. For my part, I always carry multiple knives and frequently use my combat tomahawk, Again, the tomahawk is a useful tool outside of a fight, and in combat it offers a lot of power. But honestly, it mostly comes down to the individual hunter's preference and abilities. Have the hunters ever encountered any created monsters? If you're talking about things that have been bioengineered or cooked up in a lab, then no. I don't really know how you would even determine that to be the origin of a monster but maybe I'm missing something. In any case, no, all the cryptids that we deal with were not made by humans in any way, as far as we know. Have I ever thought about writing a book under a pen name or pseudonym? Not really, but it is an idea. 
But I don't think I need to make up a pen name because I have my nephew and he's much more willing than I to go public with his identity. So if I ever published anything, it'd probably be through him. Again, I won't be writing anything more myself for a while, but I suppose that he could at least just take all these letters and put them into one book of text. If that or anything else ever happens, I'll be sure to let you guys know. Have I ever encountered a bear man? So a pure human-bear hybrid doesn't really exist, to my knowledge. There are, however, bears with certain human-like qualities known as bear people. They don't shapeshift and instead just resemble bears with some unusual traits. These include the ability to walk upright for long distances, a limited capacity for speech, and a disturbingly common habit of carrying off young human children. I find them quite creepy, in all honesty. I've never met a bear person, but they used to be somewhat common, especially out in the western half of the United States. The other monster that would fit the description of a bear man would be of course the skimwalker, which would have been known to take the shapes of bears as their animal forms. A walker who does this would be capable of taking the form of a human, a bear, or something in between. I have encountered one such walker, but I never saw him in anything other than his pure bear or pure human shape. Have my nephew or I ever interacted with the subspecies of Sasquatch known as the Yahoo? I have, once, and my nephew has as well, multiple times. He lives in Maryland, which borders West Virginia and is home to many of the same monsters. He's been called out to deal with Sasquatch in Western Maryland and West Virginia on several occasions, and I happened to be there for one of those which involved a trio of male yahoos, potentially brothers. They were raiding farms and had killed a pair of cattle, so we had to deal with them. It was an interesting hunt, not because we got to hear them make the infamous yahoo call that gives them their name, but this Sasquatch subspecies tend to have much more fun and silly names than the other monsters who wind up with more intimidating or generic ones. Anyway, the actual Yahoo call these guys make is pretty terrifying. Like a screaming roar, it only just barely resembles the word Yahoo, but I guess that's the closest approximation we have for the sound in our language. Are there any cryptids which used to be managed by the hunters, but are now recognized by the mainstream and are managed by conservationists? A few, all of which are relatively quote-unquote normal creatures, so to speak. Capital H hunters were keeping tabs on animals like the Okapi for a long time, and we've had some types of owls, possum, and fish that are now accepted by scientists and protected by law. Nothing too crazy like a shapeshifter has ever been publicly recognized, however, with national parks and game reserves and conservation areas being protected and managed the way they are, many types of monsters are being protected along with the animals that are more widely known. So conservation is a whole process that tends to benefit cryptids just as much as anything else. What do I know about cryptids that supposedly went extinct while humans existed and yet still have sightings in the modern day? There's a few of these here and there, and the hunters usually refer to them as relict cryptids. Sometimes it's hard to tell if something is the same as an extinct creature because the extinct ones may have only had old pictures or written accounts to go by. Fossils or genetic material are usually the best bets to identify potential relict cryptids. Usually it's more likely that modern cryptids are simply closely related to extinct creatures rather than being actual surviving members of those species. Anyways, 
I've spoken about at least one relict species in these letters because the Azule that I mentioned in my Namahage letter are closely related to the population of African wild dogs, which went extinct north of the Sahara long ago. However, the Azule live in North Africa, so they survived somehow. Other creatures like the Amelituka and Zabrak bear some similarities to prehistoric animals like dinosaurs and crocodilians, although they are not identical to these extinct species. It's incredibly unlikely, but still theoretically possible that these types of modern cryptids could be descendants of these extinct creatures that became different from their ancestors over time. Water tigers are another example of monsters often considered relict species because they're very related to the prehistoric saber-toothed cats of the Americas. Thunderbirds also seem quite like the ancient giant vultures and birds of prey of the Americas, but the level of linkage there is much more debatable. There are some others, but those are the ones that come to mind right now. Do the hunters employ any shamans or energy workers to bless equipment or serve other more supernatural duties? Great question. Since there are relatively few cryptids that can't be dealt with by using a good old-fashioned gunpowder and steel, most hunters never deal with the so-called magical side of things and many don't really put much faith into that sort of practice. So no, there are no members of our organization that perform these tasks full-time. However, a lot of us are in contact with medicine men, shamans, or other practitioners of similar arts and we refer to them as we see fit. Most of the time, it just comes down to the individual hunter and how much they see a requirement for things like blessings or charms. To close out this final Q&A section, let me quickly go over some questions about specific cryptids. The Nandi Bear. Is it a myth? For those who are not aware, the Nandi Bear is a cryptid from East Africa which was commonly spotted in the 18 and early 1900s. The Nandi Bear was indeed a real species, but they are one of the few cryptids that have gone extinct as far as we know. They were a close relative of the spotted hyena in Crocutta, only much larger, hence the name. Since they were nearly the size of a bear, they were historically observed by several capital H hunters in East Africa, but unlike their relatives, they were solitary in nature. And it was recorded on multiple occasions that lions and spotted hyenas were able to bring Nandi bears down. So it's usually held to be the case that Nandi bears eventually just got outcompeted by other local predators, and there haven't been any sighted for decades now. Do Wendigo fight each other if they meet? Sometimes, yes, but for Wendigo to meet up in the first place is an incredibly uncommon event. Wendigo are rare enough in the first place, and for the ranges of two to overlap is even less frequent. It has been observed on very few occasions, however, with differing results. A fight between two Wendigo has never been directly witnessed by any capital H hunter, but it's been overheard and obvious traces of the clash were found later. On one disturbing but isolated occasion, a hunter actually found that two Wendigo were collectively carrying humans off into a cave system where they then found them force-feeding the meat from other humans to turn them into Wendigo. It's completely unknown why this happened or why the Wendigo was working together, but both of them and their so-called converts were destroyed, so they may never have answers. Have I ever hunted any cryptids from India? No, although I have been to the country. If you listen to my letter about the Bunyip, I talk about the experience I had where I tracked down a Makara in the Indian Ocean. On that occasion, there were multiple Indian sailors and a hunter from the country named Dak. And after that hunt, I visited the mainland. 
India was great, but that was the only time I've ever been there for any extended period, and I would love to go back. I have been on a hunt in the neighboring Pakistan, however, which you can hear about in my Zabrak letter. But that's really the closest I've come to hunting monsters in India. And alright, everyone, that's where I'm going to end the Q&A. It's always a pleasure to hear all the different questions you guys ask and things you want to know about. And it's just as great being able to share some knowledge. I've also said before that I'd love the chance to interact with you more personally in this way. And of course, I also love sharing my experiences with you. So that's what I'm going to do for one last time with this letter. This was a crazy and unusual experience with a volcano, a rogue hunter, and no less than two different cryptids. And it's one of the strangest and most incredible things that I've ever had the fortune, or misfortune, to live through. So grab a snack, and a drink, and a blanket and settle in, because this was a real doozy of an experience, and a real doozy of a letter in terms of length. This time I'll be talking to you about two different cryptids, Laftraches and the Cherufwe. Both cryptids come from the country of Chile, where the native group called the Mapuche have known them for at least several centuries, and probably far more than that. The Mapuche are an interesting people, because they are genetically and linguistically very different from the other native groups, even their neighbors, and they have a unique culture. The Mapuche language is called Mapudungan. This will become important later. As for Chile, it's a very big country that stretches something like halfway down the western coast of South America. It's located on the Pacific Ring of Fire, which is a region where things are very tectonically and volcanically intense. In other words, Chile has a lot of earthquakes and volcanoes, hundreds of which are active. This is something to remember for later, but on to the monsters. First up, the Laftraches. A lot of English-speaking hunters find the name difficult to pronounce, so they often just shorten it to Lafes for short. If you've heard me talk about the North American little people, then you'll already have a good idea of what Lafe is, because they're similar in many ways. Lafes take the form of small humans that look just like miniature versions of the various native peoples of Western and Southern South America. They look just like these people, only much smaller, between a foot or two in size. Lafes live in a lot of different environments, but they prefer the forest and woodlands, where they often hide among the trees. Personality-wise, Lafes are usually quite indifferent to humans and usually don't care all that much about us and our affairs. However, there are times when human settlements encroach into the lands where Lafes live and this can sometimes provoke them into becoming aggressive. Usually, this isn't anything very large scale. Often, they'll do things like disturb crops and livestock or sabotage machinery and appliances. Lafes don't have any serious magical abilities, so to speak, and they're mainly just small and quick. However, they do have friendly relationships with other supernatural and dangerous cryptids, and that plays a key part in the event I'm about to explain. This brings us to the Sharufwe. I've spoken a lot about mysterious and poorly known cryptids, and the Sharufwe may be one of the most prominent in this category. I usually start off by giving a description of a monster's appearance, but for the Sharufwe, I can't really even do that. Nobody in the modern day has ever even seen one in its entirety, and the few modern sightings of this cryptid have all been very brief. Sharufwe also come from Chile 
and the Mapuche myth speak of them being made from stone, magma, fire, crystals, and lava. While this does seem very implausible, it may have more truth to it than you might initially think, as I'll get to later on in the story. Chile has multiple active volcanoes, and the legends say that the Sharufwe live inside of or underneath them, causing earthquakes, landslides, and eruptions. Have you ever heard of the story of throwing a virgin into a volcano to appease it and stave off an eruption? Well, the Sharufwe is where that idea comes from. Although it's mostly just part of the story, people probably don't sacrifice young maidens like this, but Sharufwe supposedly hunger for human flesh, and they are destructive and volatile creatures. Whether or not it's truly responsible for the natural disasters I talked about is up for debate, but after what happened to me, I believe that it might be at least partially possible. Shurufwe are very reclusive, and apparently they stay in their subterranean habitats most of the time. It's rare for one of them to surface for any long period, and again, even the capital H hunters don't know much about them. All that can be said definitively is that they are large, powerful, and intelligent. Both they and Lafes can speak human languages, as you'll see. This experience happened quite recently while I was in South America, where I had been visiting my friend Ray in his home of Brazil. You might remember him from my letter on Camazots, where I spoke about the time the two of us tangled with a group of these cryptids. It was a harrowing experience, but it brought us closer together, and we've kept in close contact ever since. Back in that letter, I mentioned how that was my first time I went to Brazil, because I've been back there a couple of times since mainly to visit Ray and the Yanomami natives he's friends with. After the scrap with the Kamazots that I spoke about, Ray and I not only realized that we made a pretty good team, but we also got on the radar of the South American hunters. Taking out nine Kamazots had been no joke, and the story soon started making the rounds, first in Brazil, then to the other countries. For one thing, like many Latino and native communities, the Central and South American hunters are a tight-knit group. For another, Camazots range across these regions, so many of the hunters there are at least somewhat familiar with them. So Ray had friends from Peru and Paraguay, and some of them started reaching out to him for backup when they needed him. He's not some legendary hero, but he's reliable and tough, and that counts for a whole lot in our line of work. That was how he met our friend, Isa, and why she called us for help. In 2015, I'd already been planning to visit Ray over the summer. I had intended to head down there in the late May time and stayed through the first half of June, but I wound up going out about a month earlier than that because of the request that Isa put into Ray, which he in turn offered for me to come down early to help with. Isa is short for Isabella. She's a Chilean hunter around Ray's age which is a little younger than myself, and she mainly works in the central and southern portions of her home country. She is closely involved with many of the Mapuche people there as well as other indigenous groups. Although Isa's work covers a broad area, she spends a lot of time in the different communities she works with, so she's quite well integrated into many of them, and at least known by a lot of people. She has a couple of favorite spots, and one of these was a little town that I'm not going to name. It's far in the south of Chile, up in the mountains in the forest. This town is near a sizable coastal city that I also won't name. And, more importantly for the story, it's also near an active volcano that I will name. Calbuco is one of those volcanoes in Chile that I was talking about earlier, and Isa knows it in the surrounding area very well. 
Again, this volcano is located close to a pretty large city, which is one of the most prominent in the region. So Issa has had many cases in and around that place. The hills in woodland around Kabuko are home to many lafes, and since the town is very small, like I mentioned, it's very rural compared to the neighboring city. Its residents have had their fair share of interactions with the little guys, even if the people don't know or acknowledge it. There is a lot of wildlife in the area, and Issa suspects the people might mistake and or write off lafes as being possums or wild cats, because there are no wild monkeys there. And like possums and wild cat species, lafes are quick, active at night, and often move on four legs while climbing. It's important to remember that lafes and sharufwe are creatures that most people often think as mythological and might not think that they're real. If they're not Mapuche or otherwise culturally native, they may be naive. Issa had recently been visiting the town and doing some routine passes through the nearby woods when she had noticed that something seemed off. There are some things that we just don't have words for, and she was feeling one of these. Ray was describing it to me, and since English isn't his primary language, he had even more trouble explaining it, although he had also found it tough in Spanish and Portuguese. It seemed like Issa got a deep sense of unease, and it was something about the world of the forest was very different than normal, in a scary and problematic way. There was a sense of dread and she felt like the woods were afraid of her, but also that she was off-put by the woods, which is not normal for her at all. Things seemed more quiet than usual. Issa noticed fewer animals, and even the bird song was dampened. She looked at the volcano at one point, and when her eyes landed on it, she also got the sudden sense that something was going to happen. She did not necessarily get the feeling that an eruption was incoming, but she had a very clear, very specific, and very bizarre thought. Something in or around the volcano was moving. Understandably confused and disturbed, Issa thought that this may be a Sharufwe. Accounts from capital H hunters of the monster do exist, and they're very vague mostly involving the hunters in question just getting out of the area as fast as possible. Issa was not sure if that was what she was dealing with, but the feeling was getting so strong that she wanted to make sure. First, she contacted her guide Ricardo, who put out a warning or advisory to the hunters in the region. I suspect that he also may have notified the civilian authorities, but I don't know for sure. Next, Issa went to ask one of her close contacts, a hunter named Raquel, if she could give her some backup on an investigation on the volcano. Turns out that Raquel had broken her ankle on a hunt and was now bedridden, so Issa went to someone else she knew very well, Ray. The two of them had worked together quite extensively before, and I have a bit of suspicion that they might have even once had some type of romantic relationship, but I never asked. In any case, this might have been part of why Issa might have turned to Ray so quickly despite him being on the other side of the continent as her. Ray was a bit busy on his farm, but he decided to leave things to his field hands to go help. That's around when he called me to come help. I think he came to me because he had fought so well against the Kamazots with me, and he knew firsthand that we made a good team. He knew that I could hold my own if I had to. I was involved with a study on chupacabras in Texas when Ray called on me. But, since I had been planning to go visit him in a month or so anyways, I agreed to go give him a hand. He told me what Issa was fearing and told me to come armed with the heaviest firepower that I could reasonably bring. One of you guys asked about explosives earlier and I said that I have used them before, and this was one such occasion. 
I've mentioned several times that there are special groups of people who supply capital H hunters with required weaponry, and I've gotten a lot of custom stuff from them before. For this hunt, the boys were kind enough to equip me with a whole brace of grenades and the most monstrous gun I've ever used. This was a custom piece used by hunters who used to tangle with the biggest of creatures, and in a bit of hilarious irony, it's called the Eruption. It's a double-barreled rifle designed to fire a slightly larger version of the 700 Nitro Express cartridge, but with a shorter barrel length and a lighter frame than the other big game guns. The way it's built makes it somewhat less accurate but significantly more powerful and versatile than the other rifles. As the name and the two barrels highlight, the eruption is designed for hunters to opt to prioritize sheer penetration and stopping power over pinpoint accuracy when dealing with creatures as huge as trolls, groot slings, or yes, shirufwe, it's not too hard to miss vital areas. The guys did a bit of a speed waiting on the gun to make it more like the rifles I was used to. I'm always amazed at how fast they can do stuff like that and they finished the modifications in no time at all. With that I was ready to go and the next thing I knew I was on the ground in Chile. The city next to the town I was headed for had an airport, so that's where I landed and Ray and Issa were there to fetch me. Issa is taller than Ray but not quite my height, with tan skin that's lighter than both of ours and hair that's the same jet black as ours. She has a nice scar over the bridge of her nose where she once got grazed by the claw of an Erica Raptor, which is genuinely one of the closest shaves I've ever heard of a hunter having. She's hardcore, but she's also very kind and I've never seen her crack a- and I've even seen her crack a joke once or twice. When I stepped off the plane she seemed pretty on edge, but if there really was a volcano monster beginning to stir I don't blame her one bit. Ray gave me a big hug and started helping me lug my bags into Issa's truck, talking fast and basically repeating everything he'd already told me over the phone. I think he was nervous too, and I said I completely understood. For my part, I intellectually understood their urgency, but I didn't feel it for myself, maybe because I didn't know much about the Sharoof way except for the scant bit of info I had found in the Hunter database, the repository. If I had known what was about to go down, however, then I probably would have had a very different mindset. Before I go on, I don't know where else to put this, so I'll say it here, because it's important to say, Issa, Ray, and I spoke in English, mostly for my benefit. Both were fluent in the language, so it wasn't a problem. However, I know a good deal of Spanish too. I've taken classes in the past and my brother-in-law is Puerto Rican, and since he and his family are very close to mine, I've been exposed to the language that way as well. So I could understand a decent amount of the Spanish that Ray, Issa, and others would use. I'll also note that Issa speaks very good Mapuche, which is also something to remember for later. On the car ride to town, Issa and Ray rebriefed me on the situation just to make extra sure that I was up to speed. After that, we discussed what this creature might be like, since all we really knew was that it was big and exuded heat. Like I said, nobody has ever really gotten a truly good glimpse of the cryptid. Issa had heard of a couple of conflicting accounts from the Mapuche tales, some saying that it was a humanoid and others describing it as a quadruped, often lizard-like in appearance. All the stories spoke of this creature as living in lava pools and the interiors of volcanoes, with a taste for human and a literal fiery temper. They say its body is made of rock, crystal, and fire, Issa told us. Like lava? I asked. Ray knew the English word, so he nodded. Yes, 
But I don't believe it. How can stone or lava be alive? Ray asked. It was an obvious question, but just as obviously a sensible one. For my part, I wasn't convinced of it either, but I knew that the description had to come from somewhere. It's like magic, I think. Mapuche often talk about spells and wizards, so they know about these things. You know of other creatures that don't make sense, Ray. Kaipora and Ayara and more. Issa pointed out and she was right. I'd encountered skinwalkers, fairies, little people, and other monsters that just don't make sense based on the regular rules and laws that we're used to in life. That doesn't mean I think that inorganic materials can come to life, but Issa had a point. You mentioned that there's lafes in the forest. Any sign of them? I asked, hoping that maybe they or the local wildlife could give us a bit more information. Not since I arrived, but I was only there for a day. Things may have changed or I may just not have found them yet. Issa answered. That was not great, but hopefully we could still find the lafes, and I had a thought. There are still some animals that are called indicator species, Lots of amphibians, for example. They can indicate the health of ecosystems. I started to explain. Oh yes, and many cryptids can act as indicators for each other's status. Either Ray or Isa responded. I think it was Isa. Exactly. So if there really is a Sharufway becoming active, do you think the La Fays could give us any hints? I asked. I was thinking the same thing. It's very possible. It could be dangerous to go near the volcano, so before we do, when we get to the town, I think we should first try to locate the Lafes. I know several spots where I've seen them or their traces in the past. I've been to this place so many times that I know it very well, Issa explained. It sounded like a solid plan, and this was another one of those times where I was very grateful to be in contact with someone who already knew about our target and their location, because that's always going to save us precious time and energy. We got to town in a few hours, and it was about what I was expecting. All the buildings were clustered around one main central road, and there were some shops, a bunch of houses, a soccer field, and other usual fixtures of any small community. Issa drove us past all this, up into the woodland that surrounded the town. The road became a dirt trail for some time before it stopped in the middle of the trees. We all got out of the truck and started gearing up. Issa told us that much like the little people that I was familiar with and really like most creatures in general, the Lafays were not too keen on guns and other weapons. Seeing those could drive them off, so it wasn't a good idea to bring them, at least the bigger guns. Because of this, we only took our pistols and knives for the possibility that things truly went sideways, or in the very unlikely event that we needed them to deal with one of the pumas or boars that lived in the region. The walk through the woods was pleasant and different to what I was used to from other places in South America. People often think of the continent as being a big tropical rainforest and jungle, and a whole lot of it certainly is. But this was also like temperate forest that you'd find in North America or Europe. There weren't too many animals besides birds, and I did notice a bit of what Issa was saying earlier. The forest seemed quiet and there was some sort of uneasiness in the air. Issa asked us if we noticed this and Ray and I both agreed that we did. Something was up, but what and why remained to be seen. I won't bore you with all the details of this next part, because it wasn't very interesting for most of it. For the rest of the day and into the evening of the next, Issa took us through the woods to visit different places that she knew the Lafays would frequent. 
Mainly these were large trees and boulders where we staked out several hours at a time to see if any lafes would come by. When we went to each place, we would leave some traditional offerings, including some food from the lunches or dinners we had brought with us, some alcohol and tobacco that we had packed up from one of the general stores in town, and some colorful bees that Issa had brought along. We would leave these at the bases of the trees or atop the boulders because Issa said the lafes never failed to pick these up. In the past, she had seen them retrieve the deliveries in person, so on a few occasions Ray and I stayed back so that we wouldn't put the little guys off and Issa stood by the offerings to watch them. We bounced around different spots as well, sometimes splitting up to get more coverage, and staying up well into the night after the first day, since lafes are often active after dark. We went through this process for a full day, camped out in the woods, and then repeated it for a second day. A couple of hours after sundown, Issa had left Ray and I watching a big mass of roots next to a stream, while she went off to set another offering. She told us the direction she was going, but told us to stay put and that she would return after a while. And come back she did, but far earlier than expected, and clearly disturbed by something. Guys, come here. Something has happened. Something terrible, she said. Obviously, that didn't sound good. So Ray and I followed her to find a strange scene. Issa had gone upstream and uphill, and when we followed her here, we began to see in our headlamps that the foliage had begun to grow blackened and blasted. Soon we were walking on ash and charcoal through an entire section of forest that had very clearly fallen victim to a fire. The far off volcano was clear through the dark, leafless corpses of trees and for a moment I had the thought that somehow it's a lava or magma could have done this. Of course there is no way that that could have been the case because there was no evidence of anything like that and it just wouldn't make any sense. This just seemed like an ordinary forest fire, but judging by Issa's reaction, there was more to it. Issa, was this a forest fire? Either Ray or I asked, and I remembered that she answered very shortly, just saying something simple like, no. We came to the crumbled ruins of one tree that had once been very tall and very wide, but was now largely charred fragments. Fires are of course a part of nature, but this was still a sad sight to see, because this tree had probably been hundreds of years old. But even more tragic and disturbing was what Issa showed us on the ground beneath the remains of the destroyed tree. She stopped us before we could walk too close, and then motioned to some pieces of black, burnt material lying amongst the ashes. At first, I thought they were just pieces of wood from the tree, and if I had just been walking by, I don't think I would have taken much notice of them had Issa not specifically pointed them out. Some of them were bigger than others, but most of them were one and a half to two feet long. I looked closer at one of the things, and it just looked like a normal piece of burnt wood. However, when looking at the individual small objects, I can focus on small details first. So, I remember when my heart skipped a beat as I took the full shape of the item. It looked like a little human form, sprawled out, black against the gray ash. Wait, what am I looking at, I asked. Mother of God, are these lafes? Ray asked, switching to Spanish. We both stepped forward and picked up one of the objects. Sure enough, it looked and felt like a wooden figurine, but hardened thoroughly by the flame and burnt entirely black. It was positioned in a disturbing way, exactly like you'd expect to see a human body a human body that had been burned alive. There were several dozen other Lafe figures, all of which looked and felt almost exactly like the one we'd initially found. Are these actual Lafe's? They're wood, not flesh, I said gently holding one of the figures. 
They are magical creatures, perhaps they become wood when they die, Ray said. These are real. They are dead lafes, I know it. This tree is where I know they've gathered in the past. These are lafes, I know it. They were burned to death, Issa said, taking her time to speak, and clearly not because she was trying to find the words in English. I could hear pain and sorrow in her voice. It was heartbreaking, because it's rare for monsters to die in such numbers like this, and Issa was clearly confused and deeply saddened. This seems very wrong. Animals are often able to run from forest fires. Why didn't the Lafays escape? They know the forest well, Ray said. I don't know. Maybe they were trying to protect the tree somehow. I don't know them very well, but they do seem to have abilities and powers, Issa guessed. Fires don't just start randomly. Usually it's because lightning ignites plant material, and even that is very rare. Have you ever seen a forest fire here, Issa? I asked, and she shook her head. This was very strange, truly. Did Shurupwe do this? Ray brought it up, and we had to think about the question. But that didn't seem right either. How had it made its way out of the volcano into this same patch of forest and why? Furthermore, we saw no trail leading away from the scene, and there was no evidence of the ground being disturbed in any way. As would be expected of a subterranean monster, we need to ask around and see if there has been a storm here recently. This seems like a recent event because nothing has started to grow back in the area, I said, and we all nodded. It was a long trek back to our truck, and we drove to town. By the time we got there, it would have been around midnight. It's not a good idea to hike anywhere at nighttime. Additionally, we were already suspicious enough being outsiders to the town, and neither was it polite to knock on doors at that ungodly hour of night. So we returned to our camp in the woods and stayed there overnight before we started back to the town early in the morning. We had a good time. We got there before noon and started asking around. It turns out there had hardly been any severe storms in the recent past and none with any lightning that the townspeople could see. They were some distance away from the site of the fire, but still, it didn't make sense to us that nobody had seen a single thing. After a couple of hours of combing the town, even visiting some people at work, we came across an older woman sitting on the street smoking a cigarette and looking like the stereotypical excellent old lady, like she didn't give a crap about any nonsense or problems. She told us that she didn't see anything, but that a little house was off in the forest where a reclusive guy lived. I shouldn't tell you his name, so we'll call him Mateo. Issa wasn't aware that anybody lived out there, and the woman explained that Mateo had only set up there recently. A dirt road led to his house, so if we went out there, we might be able to get some info from him. Honestly, I wasn't convinced this would go anywhere, but I was dead wrong. We got into the truck and drove out following the dirt road the woman had us to take. Of course, this was a different road from the one we had initially taken to get into the forest, and as the woman had told us, it was made recently, so it was a territory that many of us didn't know about. The road took us a long way into the woods, which surprised me since I had expected that Mateo would have lived closer to town. After driving for a while, we arrived at the house. It was much like you would expect, made of wood and concrete and set back into the trees. I also should note that this was a tiny house. It was rectangular, maybe 8 feet tall and 15 feet across from the front, and stretched back maybe 35 or 40. Although we did not take exact measurements, these sizes will become important later to you to give you a better picture of what we saw. 
Anyways, as capital H hunters often do when working in groups, we did not all go up to the house at once in order not to spook the residents or resident. To this end, Ray and I stayed in the truck while Issa went to the door since Mateo might know of her. In the car, we watched as Issa knocked on the door, but there was no answer because she came back to the car, shaking her head. No answer. We need to go in there, she said, sounding very determined. I don't know the laws in Chile, or how they apply locally to capital H hunters, but maybe it's because I'm from the United States where you need a search warrant, but this seemed very wrong. No way, that's got to be illegal, I said, but Issa looked very determined, to the point to where I could tell I wasn't going to stop her. We do plenty of things that would be illegal if it wasn't for our job. Listen, both of you, just like I said, I have a bad feeling about Calbuco. I'm getting that feeling about this house. I know this has to do with the fire and those dead leaves. Actually, I don't think so. I know so, she said, and I looked at Ray, who sighed and had a blank look on his face. I, I don't know about this, I said, again knowing that I wouldn't be able to hold her back. Then you can stay here. I'm going in, Issa told me firmly. That guy Mateo could be in there. I don't want her getting hurt if he is, Ray said, exiting the truck. I started yelling after him but he also seemed dead set on accompanying her. So I started swearing and got out of the car. If they were both going in, then I might as well help them, if only for the sake of lowering the chances they'd get shot or chopped up by a machete. Issa tried to open the front door, which was unlocked, so she pushed it open, and we all went inside. To lessen the chances of hostility as much as possible, we were not going in there with guns raised or anything at all, and we made sure to call Mateo's name repeatedly. But there was no answer, and all the lights were off, so it seemed that he was not home. In hindsight, one of us should have stayed behind at the front door to keep an eye out for Mateo and inform him of what was happening if he returned, but we did not think to set a watch. I believe that was a tactical mistake, but it may have unintentionally saved whoever would have been out there. Once inside, Issa immediately started searching the whole place, telling us that she was looking for clues and that we were welcome to help. I still felt terrible doing this, but I started to assist her, although half-heartedly. We found nothing until Ray went into a back room and hissed out a curse in Spanish. Guys, come over here, look, he said. Issa and I went over to find him at the entrance to a storage room. There were various tools on the walls and a bench, but Ray was pointing to the corner of the room where there were several red containers with yellow pipes on top. You may have seen these, and I'm not sure if they have a specific name but they hold gasoline or other fuel. Gas or fuel would be very convenient for starting a fire. I knew it. I knew something was wrong here, Issa said. Come on, the guy's just got some gas in his house. Plenty of people do, I said, although I understood where her thoughts were going. Wouldn't the Lafay see him if he was pouring gas around their tree? Ray asked. None of us had a decent answer, and I think we were starting to think of one when there was the slight jingle of metal tapping metal around us. We all looked around, but nothing seemed to miss for a moment until I started to notice that the ground had begun to vibrate as well. Now the jangling sound grew louder, and we realized it was because the tools on the walls were starting to shake. My first thought may be silly to you, but I immediately remembered the scene in the first Jurassic Park movie where the T-Rex is approaching, and the glass of water on the dashboard starts to ripple as its footsteps get closer. I think I was probably anticipating another huge creature coming towards us. This time the Sharufway, but there was another possibility that I voiced. The volcano? 
I asked, and Issa and Ray shook their heads and started moving for the doorway. Earthquake. Kabuko is probably too far away. Get inside a doorway and stay on the floor, they instructed. I have experienced an earthquake before, but nothing serious. Even so, I still knew the proper procedure. So I exited the storage room and went to a nearby doorway, leading to a bathroom, and crouched down on the floor. Ray remained in the doorway of the storage room and Issa went in the opposite direction of me to a doorway that led to some place that I can't remember and didn't write down. It probably only took us a minute or less to get to these positions, but the earthquake had intensified dramatically even in that short time. I could hear things falling, probably from shelves and tables, and I saw one pot come off a table and shatter on the floor. From outside there was also the sound of foliage crashing, likely from a falling tree or two. There was a loud rumbling noise throughout all of this, like being next to a jet turbine, and soon my vision was beginning to blur with the number of tremors that I was undergoing. I could feel the shaking rattling my entire body, until suddenly it tapered off, vanishing completely in maybe 10 or 20 seconds. Everything suddenly went back to normal, as if nothing had ever happened. I looked at Issa and Ray, who told me to stay down in case of aftershocks. That was very strong, Issa said, when things had calmed down. Ray started to respond, but he was cut off when the front half of the house suddenly vanished. And when I say vanished, I mean the entire front of the house just separated completely from the rest of the structure, sending stone and wood crumbling down and falling in all directions. After this, we couldn't entirely determine if that part of the house was pulled away or simply just crushed flat into the ground. I threw myself to the ground and covered my head with my hands, so I didn't see what happened next, but from what I had caught sight of, it genuinely seemed like the hand of God just swooped in and removed the whole front of the house. And it turns out that this analogy isn't too far off because as all this happened, a wave of heat came rushing into the now open back half of the house. It had been warm outside, but not like this. Imagine leaving a hot shower running for 10 minutes and then stepping into the bathroom. And that was what we were feeling. It wasn't blazing, but it was very noticeable. But the open front half of the house was filled with something, which we all realized was the source of the heat. To this day, I genuinely have difficulty describing or conveying what we saw, and the level of utter smallness and frailty that it made me feel. It seems too unbelievable to be true, but believe me, it makes as little sense to me as it will to you. I sometimes think that it was a dream, or maybe that my memories were exaggerated, but Ray and Issa saw it too. It is possible that we had a mass hallucination, maybe even one brought on by a cryptid, but it was so real that I know it wasn't purely imagination. Taking up much of the opening in the house was what looked like a wall of stone, craggy and primarily black and gray with streaks of yellow overlaid by patches of moss, pebbles, and shiny crystalline rocks. It almost seemed as if an enormous volcanic boulder had smashed the front of the house away, except that this boulder was exuding heat and still moving. As we watched, it receded from the opening, and at some point around there, I made out three black pillars on the rock face, which later I realized were claws or talons. The ground practically fell away from the front of the house as the rock pulled away, and then the lowest and most blood-curdling growl I have ever heard shook the house and produced the sound that we had heard before. I flung my hands up to cover my ears, but that was like spitting into a storm. It essentially did nothing and the sound made tears run down my face as my body was racked by tremors. I felt paralyzed suddenly. I don't know if this was shock or something external. 
In any case, I could only watch as things unfolded. The wall of stone had not taken up the entire opening, but certainly most of it. And I think it was around there that I realized that this was not some huge rock. It was the body of a creature, a titanically large creature that we all knew the identity of. The word Shrufwe was all that I could think of over and over on a loop in my brain. As the Shrufwe's body and hand pulled back, something came in to replace it. Quicker than I would have expected, the opening in the front of the house was suddenly filled with what we now know was the side of the Shrufwe's head. We couldn't see the whole head, but from what we could see it seemed long and pointed, with a sort of overhanging eyebrow. This was all the same texture as the paw or whatever that part was that had destroyed the house earlier. Except now I could clearly see defined scales or scutes, much like a crocodile or a lizard. Even in this moment of absolute terror, I still remember that detail, and it makes me wonder how detail-oriented brains like mine can hold on to small and seemingly irrelevant things even during highly distressing experiences. Most pressing, however, was the single gargantuan eye that stared in at us. Ray, Issa, and I can't agree on exactly how big the eye was, but it had to have been at least a couple of feet across. It might have been larger than even an Allah's eye, and it was well over the size of a troll or even a blue whale's eye. Although blue whales have tiny eyes relative to their body size, so this wasn't necessarily a great indicator of the cryptid's overall size. The eye was not red or bloodshot but amber, the color of honey, with a circular black pupil. It was haunting and beautiful and terrifying, and I strongly believe that the gaze had a hypnotic effect because when it came to me, my whole body instantly went limp. I don't think that was purely a shock or fear response, although those feelings were certainly present. If my bladder had not been empty, I can assure you that I would have wet my pants right then and there. I couldn't look away from the eye, which darted and rolled as it scanned the room and looked at Issa, Ray, and me one by one. That was when the Shrufwe began to speak. For this part, I must rely largely on Issa and Ray's translations, because not only was I too shaken to focus on most of what the Shrufwe's words were, but I was also not able to understand much of what was being said. I couldn't see a mouth on the creature, mainly because of a couch was partially blocking my view, but Issa later said that she could see a jagged line that was probably part of the Shrufwe's jaw. However, she said that the mouth hardly moved as the creature spoke, even though we all heard it audibly and plain as day. It was a rumbling sound and I could hear shifting rocks and falling dust as it spoke. Even though I could not register the words, the voice was clear and firm. Not evil or malicious, but more like a parent speaking sternly to a child. And all three of us did feel very much like children at the moment. Issa tells me that it first began speaking in the Mapuche language very clearly stating the phrase, You are not him, before asking, Where is he? Of course, Issa is the only one who understood it, and although it paused to give her a chance to answer, she was silent. The Sharufwe switched to Spanish because Ray says that he also understood it now, as did I. Although I wasn't fully processing it, the Sharufwe repeated the question, asking, Where is he? This time, Issa did speak up, simply replying, Who? The response was cryptic. The blind one. Issa ventured to ask if this was a person who lived in the town, and the Sharufwe responded in saying, In this place. 
presumably referring to the little house that it had just torn in half. Ray spoke up saying that Mateo was not there and that we were looking for him. This seemed to get the Sharufwe interested because its eye seemed to visibly widen, rolling around with what may have been agitation or excitement and the heat coming into the house intensified. Clearly the monster was feeling some emotion quite strongly. Outside we heard the rubble of the house creaking and groaning, likely as the cryptid moved it around. Then it spoke a pair of sentences that are the last thing that you'd want to hear if you were Mateo. He hurt my friends. I will hurt him. I don't think any of us put anything together at that moment, and I'm sure that Issa and Ray responded out of fear, but they again assured the Sharufwe that we were looking for Mateo and that we intended to find him. The Sharufwe seemed somewhat satisfied, and this was because it eventually gave a deep, thrumming sound, a bit like a breath, and simply said, Find him. I will hurt him. And on that nightmarish note, everything was over, just like that. It was like I blinked and the Sharufwe just disappeared. I don't remember it saying anything else or it even moving. At first, I thought that this may be my mind trying to blot out part of my memory. But when I talked to Issa and Ray, they both said the same thing had happened to them. Neither of them remembers the Sharufwe leaving, and it just seemed like it had vanished. There was no second earthquake or immense sound or really anything to indicate it leaving. But the front half of the house was still crumbled into the earth, with splintered wood and pieces of concrete scattered around like toothpicks and breadcrumbs. When we left the house, there was also an obvious streak of fallen trees and destroyed earth where it looked like a fissure had been opened and then partially closed. This is not uncommon during earthquakes, and even though I dearly wished that this was the explanation for what we were seeing, we all knew that that was not the case. Are you guys going to be able to write? I asked Issa and Ray. They both looked at me with blank, harrowed expressions. What? They asked, confused and still rattled. I want us all to write down what just happened, what we just saw and heard. Write it separately from one another. I need to know if we all just experienced the same thing. I told them. They both seemed to agree that this was a fine idea, so I tore some pieces of paper out of my journal and gave them some extra writing utensils. We all crowded around the hood of the truck, leaning on it for support in writing with still shaking hands. I don't know why I had suggested this exercise, but it's something I often have witnesses do with each other, just so that they can get their facts straight and validate each other's experience. In this case, I think that what happened was just so unbelievable that I wanted to know if it happened in the first place. And like I said, it may have just been a mass hallucination or a shared waking dream, but I believe it truly took place, both because of what later took place and because of Ray, and because Ray, Issa, and I all wrote down the same things. We had all seen the house collapse, and we had all seen the paw and part of the body and the head, and we had all heard the ancient rocky voice. Ray and Issa both took care to write down the words and phrases that they had heard from the Sharufwe, and their translations were almost identical and matched up with a few bits that I had caught as well. It seemed that we had all experienced the same thing, and now we were left to figure out what to do about it. I think Mateo started the fire. I think he killed the Lafes, Issa said straight out after the long silence. I think Ray and I looked at each other and then back at her, but I don't remember picking anything up from Ray's expression. Issa, we don't know, Ray said, but I stepped in because I was leaning more towards Issa's side of things now. Wait, Ray, 
We've got evidence, man, I said. Think of what that Sharufway said. It said that the person who lived there hurt their friends, and we found gasoline in Mateo's house. Quite a bit of it. I think the Lafays were these friends, and I think the Sharufway is out for revenge. Issa said, voicing exactly what I had been thinking. So then what do we do? We're just going to turn Mateo into a giant volcano monster? Ray asked. He had a point, and I honestly didn't know what to do. I think we should track him down and hear him out. Once we've gotten his side of the story, then we can figure out what to do. I suggested, taking care not to make any decision one way or the other about what Ray had said. I agree. Let's start by finding Mateo, Issa said. We already had a very helpful clue from the Sharuf way, because it had identified Mateo as El Ciego. I did not recognize the second word, but Ray and Issa translated the phrase to me as the blind one. So we were looking for a blind man, presumably, which narrowed things down a whole lot. However, the description did call into question how Mateo could have located the Lafage trees and set it on fire. How had he have known about the tree's location and the importance in the first place? He had help, I think Ray put forth, which I also had been thinking. Maybe. That sounds quite likely. But who and why? I asked. Nobody had an answer, so we just decided to go back to town and ask around. It turned out that hardly anybody knew anything, just like they hadn't been aware of the fire. Even more surprisingly, the town had only experienced very slight tremors. Some people hadn't even been aware that the earth shaking had even taken place. That made no sense to us because the Sharufway's approach to the house had been so intense. How could anybody not have heard what went down? Admittedly, we were a good distance away from town, maybe around a mile and a half or two miles, but it just didn't seem right that the town had barely felt anything. Some people had noticed it, but nobody took too much note. Again, Chile is located on the Ring of Fire, so this wasn't an uncommon occurrence. This puzzled us, but we went the rest of the day asking around and trying to get any information about Mateo or where he might be. Almost everyone that we talked to said that he was a total recluse, who hardly came into town and none of them had seen him any time recently. However, one guy who I won't really identify told us that Mateo was indeed blind but only in one eye. This wasn't a condition he had from birth. Mateo used to be sighted in both eyes, but something had occurred recently that left him blind in one eye. The man had seen his... The man had seen this the last time that Mateo came into town. This new bit of information seemed peculiar, but we weren't entirely sure what to do with it. And as it happens, we would not be able to do anything with it anytime soon, because that evening something huge happened out of nowhere. It started around 5.30 or 5.45, I'd say when we started feeling slight tremors. Nothing huge, but noticeable. We hunters were concerned that it might be the Sharufway coming, but it is nowhere near as intense as it had been before. Even so, Issa started going around warning people, but it wasn't as if people were fleeing in terror. Everyone seemed relatively unconcerned. That was until there was a huge rumbling noise in the distance, and a massive plume of ash soared into the sky. Ray, Issa, and I were outside on the street, and there were some cars and pedestrians around us as well. Everybody seemed to see the ash because people started to point and look up. There was a hairdresser nearby, where the proprietor ran out and started shouting that Kalbuko was erupting. Everybody started getting freaked out, but again nobody was sprinting around screaming like in the movies. People just started jogging or moving quickly and Ray, Issa, and I turned and started heading for the truck. 
I was concerned, yes, but I also was a bit intrigued. It's not every day that you get to see a massive volcanic eruption. We got in the truck and drove out of town. Later, we would learn that the government declared a red alert and started telling people to evacuate. We saw tons of people leaving the town as well, on foot and in cars, often stocked up with those big blue plastic water jugs or some containers of gasoline we'd seen in Mateo's house. Ray, Issa, and I pulled to the side of the road on a ridgeline and looked out to see what looked like a total apocalypse, beautiful and terrifying at the same time, just like the Sharuf way. A massive cloud of white-yellow smoke and ash had blasted what must have been miles up into the dark blue sky, spreading out far and wide, blocking out the sun. We could only just barely make out the very top of the volcano, but the spreading cloud of ash was very clear. To me, it almost looked like those big mushroom clouds made by huge bombs, except that instead of a round mushroom shape at the top, the summit of this cloud was spreading out like a plate, coating the entire sky. As it got darker, we could even see huge bolts of purple or white lightning coming down on top of the volcano. And I swear that it really looked like something out of a movie or what you'd imagine the end of the world to be like. The ash eventually began drifting away from us, off to the north and east, but some of it still started coming our way, and I could only hope that both us and all the people and plants and other living creatures in the way of the ash and smoke would be okay. We should keep traveling away from here. We don't want to be this close to the ash. Let's drive to the city, Issa suggested. And although I did want to keep watching, she was right. We followed Issa's lead and got back into the truck, which we then took to the city that I mentioned earlier. Pretty much everyone was on the streets, and some were even watching the volcano but many were grabbing water and food or filling up at gas station. From an elevated position on a hill, we got a clear view of Kalbuko on the horizon, surrounded by clouds and periodic branching bolts of lightning that were bigger and more violent than any I'd ever seen. Soon ash began to fall from the sky, not a huge amount, but enough to start coating the surroundings. We managed to get a hold of some face masks and ran inside a restaurant to take cover. For a long while, it seemed a lot like it was snowing, except that this was cooling. Hazardous volcanic ash falling from the sky. From start to finish, I'd say the eruption itself lasted maybe a bit over an hour, and certainly no more than two. The ash kept falling for a long while after that. It was one of the most spectacular and scary events I have ever witnessed, and it just added to the wildness of the whole thing. The restaurant we had taken refuge inside was big and rather fancy, with two floors and there were maybe around 45 people inside, many of whom had just come in from the street to hole up just like us. The restaurant owners were nice enough to let people who had nowhere else to stay, stay there overnight, and we also decided to wait it out until the ash stopped coming down. The night started to drag on, and Ray, Issa, and I went to a table in the corner and started discussing the situation over some drinks. We couldn't be 100% sure if this had been the Sharukwe's doing, Although it certainly seemed to be, if that was the case, then why? It already knew that we weren't hostile towards it, so was it just making a point? Maybe it was going to give us a taste of what could happen if we failed to find Mateo. The eruption was massive, yes, but we hadn't seen any lava or magma yet, so it feasibly could get worse. Was the cryptid just raging? It wasn't clear to us, and we still don't have an answer to this day but I suppose things can go like this when you're dealing with inhuman intelligence. My nephew has had this happen to him multiple times in his dealings with fairies, where they act in a way or do things that just don't make sense to us based on our normal human way of thinking. It seems illogical to us, but they clearly have a reason for it, which we're just not always able to grasp. 
Maybe this was one of those times. At about two in the morning, things started up again. I had dozed off at the table when a commotion started up. Kabuko was evidently erupting again, and somebody in the restaurant had the grand idea to go up to the rooftop for a better view. I knew this was probably not the smartest idea, but again, this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and since we were now equipped with face masks, we would probably be okay for at least a few minutes. Evidently, the restaurant owners were okay with the plan, so along with most of the other people in the building, Issa Ray and I climbed up onto the roof and looked out at the volcano in the distant horizon. The rooftop was covered in ash as if it were snow, and some were still hanging in the air. Things had been incredible enough before, but now the volcano truly appeared like the cartoons portray eruptions. A bright red glow was coming from the summit, and lightning would snap across it every so often. The red, orange, and yellow light of flames and lava would shoot up from the peak too, like Kalbuko, or the Sharufway inside, was belching or vomiting up the fire. People were now crying out and started to get scared, and I was not feeling very peachy either. Again, it looked like the end of the world, and now some people were freaking out as if it was. Others were able to calm them down because the volcano was far away after all. But it was an incredible experience. Even with that level of fear, the level of what we were witnessing was just unbelievable. Lava and molten rock had been coming down all around the volcano, not to mention the ash and smoke. There was no way that anything close to the base of Kalbuko was surviving that destruction. Luckily, there are no towns directly at the base of the volcano, and I think most people had already evacuated other nearby areas anyways. It was one of the most intense experiences I have ever been through, and it didn't end there. The eruptions and explosions continued for a whole entire week, but slowly began to die down as time went on. Eventually, people started moving back home, and when we returned there alongside a group of them, things genuinely looked like another world. Ash covered everything, white and gray like snow, carpeting every surface in sight. One of the roads was blocked off because the ash had made crossing a bridge impossible, and back in town, one house had been crushed under the weight of it. We saw its residents arrive crying and starting to bring out what little they could salvage from the wreckage. Other townspeople were giving them a hand, and we pitched in as well, helping them load their stuff into their cars so that they could take it to a hotel or somewhere else they went. It was a grim and tough scene all around, and I could see that Issa was already deeply saddened by the destruction. We went back to the truck so we wouldn't be out in the air. Ray gave Issa a hug and sat with her while I jotted down notes and tried to think of what to do next. As we sat there in the truck, somebody came up to us. It was a tall, stocky man in a dark jacket, with his hood up and white surgeon's mask over his face like the ones we had gotten for ourselves. He knocked on the window and we let it down. He asked a question in Spanish, his voice quiet but firm, and I deferred to Issa and Ray because I couldn't understand him between the mask and the speed that he was speaking. Ray and Issa both looked a bit taken back by the question, but they answered him. They only exchanged a couple more sentences before the man pointed down the street and walked off. What was that all about? I asked. That was strange. He asked if we were the ones looking for Mateo, and when we said yes, he told us to meet him in a place nearby so he could tell us some information. Ray explained. That sounded very fishy to me, which I pointed out, but Issa didn't seem as put off as me. I think it's okay. Crime here is not a problem and there are three of us with guns. I doubt he's trying to do anything bad, she said. Do you know him? I asked, and she shook her head. That also wasn't a great sign, but I figured that a lead is a lead, 
and since she knew the place and people far better than me, I decided to follow Issa's lead. We went into the building cautiously armed like we had been at Mateo's house. The building to which we were headed was a barbershop, of all places, but when we arrived we found it almost completely empty. Apparently the proprietors had yet to return after evacuating. The only person inside was our mystery man sitting in one of the chairs, looking a bit uptight. He had taken his mask off, and we saw that he had a thick black beard and dark circles under his eyes, like he had not slept in days. Even while seated, it was obvious that he was tall, and he looked like a gnarly guy who had been through the ringer and came out stronger for it. The front of the barber shop had two big windows that allowed a clear view inside from the street, and even though there were very few people out and about for obvious reasons, we still felt that, with this level of visibility, we would not be very safe. We stopped outside and discussed the situation once more, and eventually decided to just go for it and enter. When we went in, I made sure to stay close to the door in case we had to make a quick exit for whatever reason, while Ray and Issa went closer to the guy to talk. As always, I understood a decent bit of it, but I also used Ray and Issa's help to translate the summarize accurately. So this retelling is my recollection combined with what I was told. Thanks for coming. Are you Issa? The man asked, which made us all a little more... Which made us all feel a little bit more on edge. It made sense that he knew her name because many people in the town did, but why was he asking for her specifically in such a secretive way? Yes, I am. Who are you? Issa asked cautiously. My name is Javier. I'm sure you've heard of me, the man said. Issa looked surprised, and we asked what was going on since she did not seem to know this guy. She explained that she didn't know him, and that she had been told of him and spoken briefly with him over the phone. Javier was apparently another hunter who had moved from the north of the country down to this part of it. He operated out of a nearby city, different than the one we had gone to during the eruption. However, the range in which he operated included the town we were in now, which of course was also Issa's stomping grounds. Since their work areas overlapped, they'd gotten in contact before to introduce themselves to each other, but they had never actually met in person. He had figured that Ray and I were also hunters based on the way we were operating so closely to Issa. That was all well and good, but when we asked why we had been called here, he told us a strange and disturbing story. In order to describe this next part, I must make up some brief identifiers because I'm not going to give specific place names, so for the purpose of this story, we'll call this town where we are currently in, Town C, like C for Sharufway since that's where we had met the Sharufway and found the dead Lafes and Mateo's now-destroyed house. Remember, Town C is also the place where Issa and Javier's work ranges overlapped. Now, I'll say again that Javier came from a town further north before moving south to Town C, so we'll call this other town Town N, as N is for northern. Javier told us that not only did he hail from the Town N, but Mateo did as well. The two of them had grown up together and were actually very close friends to the point that Mateo knew about the Capital H Hunters and Javier's position among the organization. Time went on and eventually Mateo moved down to Town C. There he suffered the incident where he lost his eye. Javier was not entirely sure what had happened, but he had gotten a call from Mateo where his friend had seemed very distressed. Mateo had told him that he had been blinded in one eye and that he wanted to track down the Lafes to get it healed. Javier had told them the Lafes probably didn't have that power, and he hadn't wanted to tell Mateo how to find them. 
but Mateo had begged him, impressed him, and Javier had heard immense pain in his friend's voice. Eventually, he caved and gave Mateo the vague information that Lafays liked to hide around large trees, caves, and rock formations. Javier had heard nothing else since until he had seen the ash clouds and the lightning that heated the rock that had come raining from the sky. Also, fearing that the Sharufway might have been disturbed, he headed down to the area and heard of our presence there and that we were looking for Mateo. Javier feared that his friend might have done something terrible, and he had come down to Town C, where he had heard of our presence. Now everything started coming together. Whatever had happened to Mateo's eye may have had something to do with the Lafes. We told Javier how we discovered the burnt patch of forest with the dead Lafes in their gathering tree, and how we had learned about Mateo and found the fuel containers in his house, and how we had encountered the Sharufway up close right afterward. We could all connect the dots now. Mateo started the fire and killed the Lafes, and in doing so had probably triggered the Sharufway's activity. Holy mother of God, what have I done? Javier whispered when he heard all of this. Here's the thing you need to know. As I've said in previous letter, capital H hunters are not required to sign any sorts of NDA or swear ourselves to secrecy. After all, if we were, I wouldn't be writing this. We get to tell people about our work and our organization at our own discretion. However, most hunters keep very secret anyways, only letting close friends or family in on our knowledge. We hardly ever tell anyone super specific information, like where cryptids live. However, this is exactly the sort of thing that Javier had told Mateo. Javier had not given any specific individual locations, but he had given Mateo enough pointers for him to be able to discover the Lafays and kill them. And there is a bit of an unspoken principle about us sharing information. A principle that I never actively considered before this case with Javier. If you tell someone information that directly leads to the unsanctioned harm of a monster, then you are at risk of being punished if the organization ever finds out. That's why I try to take care to avoid mentioning specific places or people unless it's incredibly important. Again, there's no specific rule against it, but it's a good policy in general and even more so because of these potential consequences. Javier had given Mateo information that had likely led to the death of the Lafes, and by extension, potentially the Sharufway's activity. I have mentioned before that there are specific hunters whose jobs it is to deal with so-called rogue hunters, ones who have gone against the organization's tenets or caused undue problems and harm to the people or cryptids. The members of our organizations that are tasked with dealing with these rogue hunters are secretive even for us, and some people don't even know that they exist. They don't have any singular official title as far as I'm aware, and they go by many names, all beginning with capital letters as usual for our different positions and subgroups. They're variously called Hawks, Overseers, Enforcers, Sentries, Judges, and more. In much of Latin America, they're called Observadors, which Ray and Isa told me means something like watchers, so that's what we called them. These are the guys who Javier might now have to contend with. That is after he was done contending with Isa. I watched this all happen in real time, so here's my best account based on translations and what I saw. So you're saying that you told Mateo where to find the Lafes? Isa asked. I remember her voice was very deadpan because it gave no indication of what she was going to do next. Yes, Javier replied simply. It almost looked like Javier was about to continue speaking, but he could not because Issa advanced on him and punched him across the face. And it was a hell of a punch too, because we all heard the impact. 
I don't even remember what hand Issa hit him with because it was just a sudden and vicious blow. She slugged him, and I would have been almost proud of her, if the circumstances were different, of course. Equally as impressive was Javier's reaction or lack thereof. He was quite a big guy, but that had been a severe hit, and he just wholly ate it with only a grunt in response. Ray and I immediately ran in, grabbed Issa, and pulled her back before she could launch another hook. But she didn't struggle against us. Evidently, she decided to stop after the one punch, but she was still spitting some vile curses at Javier, some of which even I recognized. Again, things went down relatively fast, and I couldn't understand everything being said, so here I am using the translations I remember. What the hell are you doing, Issa? Ray shouted. No, no. She had every right to hit me. I made a mistake that led to a lot of pain and suffering. I deserve more than just a punch, Javier said, rubbing his face where he had been hit. You didn't know what Mateo was going to do, I said. But why did he do it? Isa asked, switching back to English in response. Ray and I let her go at some point around here, and now she seemed more sad and confused than angry. I think the Lafays took his eye, somehow. I don't know why or how because he would not tell me anything except that he was blinded in one of his eyes. I think he lied to me, telling me that he wanted to find the Lafes so that they could heal him when, when really, he just wanted to take revenge, Javier said. Also in English, he was less experienced with the language, so his speech wasn't so fluid, but I am going for clarity here. Javier's statement seemed like a potential answer to the mystery but there was one distinct issue with it. But I thought the Lafes don't go out of their way to harm people like that, Ray said. He and I looked over at Isa, our resident expert on the local cryptids. Maybe Javier also knew a similar account, but we were not ready to defer to him over Isa. I don't think that they would blind him, but it is possible. But, however, if it did happen like this, I highly doubt it was intentional. Isa answered. It just doesn't seem right that Mateo would go after the Lafes for healing. The Lafes don't do that and don't have the power that we know of. It seems like an excuse to me. A lie, Javier said. I could not tell if he doubted his friend because he felt betrayed, but he had a point, nonetheless. Is it possible that he lost his eye by some other means and genuinely went to the Lafes hoping they would heal him? It may have been a strange solution, but maybe he truly believed in it, I put forth, and took revenge on the Lafays when they could not help him. Quite possibly. This seems more likely, Issa said. If this alternate story was true, then it seems likely that Mateo was quite disturbed and maybe even mentally ill. In any case, he had been upset enough to risk starting a forest fire, and he had killed creatures that may have been innocent if our second theory was true. We discussed the situation for a while longer, but even to this day we don't have all the answers for what really happened. We still didn't know why the Sharufway had set off the eruption if it indeed had, and another big question was why the Sharufway decided to make a move when it did. Why hadn't it always come after humans before, when they were building and changing the Lafay's habitat and encroaching onto their home areas? We don't have an exact answer but we were almost entirely sure that Mateo had intentionally started the fire and killed the Lafes. It was possible that this was not true, but we had overwhelming evidence. 
So, our best guess is that things got personal for the Sharufwe when Mateo was actively targeting the Laface. Maybe the Sharufwe was responding to his explicitly malicious and violent intentions. It also seemed like it may have been waiting to move until it could figure out who attacked the Laface and where this attacker lived. After all, it had explicitly called out Mateo. We also have no answer as to why the Laface didn't just run away from the fire instead of burning inside of it. Perhaps Mateo had snuck up on them enough to catch them off guard, but that seemed unlikely because Laface are very sensitive and observant monsters. Our best hypothesis is what Issa has suggested at the murder scene. Maybe the Laface were seeking to guard or protect the tree somehow, and they ultimately failed and perished alongside of it. Regardless of our outstanding questions, we still had a job to do. We had to track down Mateo. We didn't know what to do with him when we found him. At the very least, we wanted to hear if he had anything to say, and then we could make a plan from there. Javier and Issa both seemed very much in favor of a severe punishment, and Issa suggested that maybe we could turn him into the Watchers, which wasn't a bad idea. None of us had any protocol for a situation like this, especially when an angry volcano monster was involved. Whatever we wound up doing, we had to contact the Sharupwe again, if only to tell it that we had found Mateo and we were going to deal with him ourselves. After all, the cryptid had made it very clear that it would not give Mateo a fair trial. But to do any of this, we first had to find Mateo. He wasn't at his house or anywhere around here, we told Javier. I think I know where he may have gone. Mateo's mother lived a short distance from here, up the road from town. Part of why he moved here was to be closer to her in her old age. She passed away not too long ago and I believe he now owns her house. He built his own, the one you went to because he found it too painful to stay in his mother's old house. Mateo has never been rich, as you can guess from his house. He's never been social. So now that his own house is gone, he probably has nowhere to stay except for his old house of his mother's. I think we'll likely find him there, Javier explained. Issa, Ray, and I thought it was a good idea, so we agreed to go with Javier to the house belonging to Mateo's mother. Before we set off, Javier gave us a severe warning. Mateo was determined, if we hadn't realized that by now. When he set his mind on something, he would do it and he also wasn't dumb or unaware of the consequences of his actions. We could not be sure whether he knew about the Sharufwe and its actions and connections to what he did, but even if he did not, he might be expecting Javier to come after him. He knew about Javier's position as a hunter, and someone who had a positive relationship with the Lafes. It stood to reason that after committing the act, he would be on guard for potential repercussions. Hell, even if Javier didn't come after him, someone else might if they discovered that he had burned down a chunk of forest. Because of this, Javier explained that he would approach and try to talk to Mateo into coming with us. The rest of us would have to remain hidden and be ready to intercept Mateo if he tried to break for it or do anything else. Is there a back door to the house? We asked Javier, and he took a long moment to close his eyes, probably trying to recreate the layout of the place in his mind as best as he could before eventually shrugging. I can't remember, but I guess maybe there probably is. This place is bigger than Mateo's house that the Sharufwe destroyed, and it doesn't have a side or back door. It almost certainly has windows, Javier answered. This may sound strange, but how paranoid do you think Mateo is? Do you think he would have taken extra security measures against you coming to find him? I asked. 
I remember expecting Javier to laugh or scoff at the question, but he didn't. Instead, he just looked angry. Although, to be fair, that might have just been a combination of his beard and his stern expression. I don't know. He's never been very predictable. I would never have thought him capable of burning La Faze and their home, but it looks like he did just that. I cannot trust him or tell you what he would do anymore. But I would think that he's scared of me. How scared? I don't know, Javier responded. With little idea of what we were up against but few choices, we decided to head out for Mateo's mother's old house that night. We would go loaded with small arms, and I also decided to bring my tomahawk just in case. I had no idea what exactly I was going to do with it, but it's a trusty friend that's always gotten me through countless scrapes, and I had a feeling that it would come in handy. My instincts at this point have been put through the ringer over the past four decades, so I have a lot of faith in them, and they didn't let me down on that occasion. We also hoped that the ash might provide some level of cushioning so we could approach the house a little bit more quiet, but we all were very accustomed to sneaking through the woods, so this likely wouldn't be too different. Well, after sunset, we got into Issa's truck and Javier got into his jeep. With all of our luggage and gear in Issa's car, there wasn't room for all four of us in there, not to mention Mateo, and we weren't going to risk leaving all of our supplies in a town unprotected. Javier drives ahead, leading us up the road out of the town. It was in a different direction than Mateo's destroyed house, but it wasn't very far, and we passed a few more rural houses and farmsteads. Once we had gone a couple of more miles, Javier pulled off into the grass on the side of the road, and we followed him. All of us hopped out and started checking our gear, which there wasn't much beside our pistols and knives. The house is a bit further up this road. He won't see us if we approach on foot, but we'll need to split up as we get closer. Two of you go around the left of the house, the other on the right. I'll go towards the front door and try to talk to him like we said. If you hear things becoming problematic, get in the house and grab him, Javier said. As before, I knew this idea was incredibly illegal, but we all did. Usually, this was not a problem for me, but I guess it's a different situation when dealing with humans because they have more legal rights than wildlife and monsters. Hell, I mean humans have legal rights in the first place. But this was our plan, and I could only hope our guides would be able to bail us out if something happened. I think all of us were uncomfortable with the whole thing, except for maybe Javier. The guy had always been stoic as far as we had seen him, but now there was no question that he was angry, even under his face mask, and that was probably overriding whatever qualms he might have about the operation. In any case, we were committed, so we had to just bite the bullet and go for it. Ray and Issa would take the left side and I would take the right. We began walking up the dirt road that led to the house, staying off to the sides of it for additional cover. Although there was not much of a moon to give natural light, for the same reason, we did not use headlamps or flashlights, and instead just trusted our senses to guide us through the dark. But it was late, so I can't really remember if we had expected Mateo to be awake or not, but as we advanced, it seemed like he was. The house now came into view, and soon enough, it was more significant than Mateo's other one but still not humongous by any means. It had two floors and wasn't very wide or long, and one of the windows on the top floor there was a single light on. However, it was blocked somewhat. We thought it might be from the blinds or a curtain. Once the house came into view, Ray and Issa headed off to the left and I went right. 
To avoid being spotted, I made a vast arc, making the shape of a backward letter C by swinging far out into the trees and then slowly turned back towards the house once I got parallel to the rear of it. As I approached, I could make out a pair of windows on my side of the first floor and a back door. The trees went up very close to the house on the sides and the rear. So I got close to the edge of the tree line, stopping a few yards from hiding behind a tree in the shadows. If I had to make a move, I decided to go for the back door first and hit the windows if it was locked or otherwise blocked off. I only had to wait for a couple of minutes before I saw a bright white floodlight come from the front of the house and incredibly loud alarms start blaring. My first thought was that Ray or Issa had made a move prematurely, but then realized the silliness of the study. The floodlights were coming from the front of the house. That's where Javier was. Mateo must have rigged the lights and alarms to motion trigger against anyone approaching the house from the front, but nobody expects people to break in from the front door, so there were likely more lights and alarms on the sides and rear of the house too. That meant if Ray, Issa, and I had to go in and we had to move fast. I almost thought about even using the front alarms as a cover to break into the back, but then thought better of it. Violence was a final option only to be used if things escalated and Javier could not talk Mateo down and get him to come out. A few moments passed before the alarm shut off suddenly, and I heard a voice calling out from inside the house, presumably Mateo's. I heard Javier respond from the front and I heard him say no, followed by a word that I didn't know. I knew that no in Spanish can mean don't, and I've seen enough cop and action movies to put it together that Javier was probably saying something like don't shoot, which made me worried because that would mean that Mateo was armed. I wish I had Ray or Issa with me to translate, but we hadn't thought of that, so I had to make do. As before, I'm about to recount what I was able to make out combined with what they recapped for me after the fact. From the path leading up to the front door, Javier continued talking to Mateo, telling him that he wanted him to come outside so they could speak face to face. Mateo patently refused, saying that he knew Javier would try to apprehend him if he left the house. Javier asked why Mateo would think that, and Mateo told him not to play dumb, saying that he knew full well that Javier was aware of his actions, and that this is why he had come to the house in the first place. Javier said that he was aware of what Mateo had done, but he still had questions that needed to be answered, and he wanted to see his old friend eye to eye so that he could hear his side of the story. I had not understood much of this for myself, but at this point, even I could listen to Mateo's voice, and he seemed to waver. And for a minute, I thought he might come out, but it only lasted for a mere second because apparently, that was when Mateo spotted the gun at Javier's belt. He yelled out and asked why Javier was armed if he was only coming to talk. Javier seemed at a loss for a moment before he responded that he was always armed because that was a part of his job. But Mateo was not having any of it, ordering Javier to take the pistol out of his holster and put it on the ground. And Javier might have been able to defuse the situation if he had listened. But no, instead he straight up refused to disarm himself, which I somewhat understood but also disagreed with. That was when Mateo, who we three were in the back now realized was armed, let loose a burst of gunfire, which sounded like it was from an AK-47 or some other rifle shooting on semi-auto. I heard Javier cry out. That was all the cue we needed to rush in from the back. As we ran up to the house, more blinding white floodlights in the rear activated and the alarms began to blare again just as I predicted, but that was fine. The sound gave us additional cover, so Mateo might not know what angle we'd come in from. 
While Ray and Issa went to the house from the opposite side of me, I ran up to the back door and tried to yank it open. But as I had feared, it was locked tight. Abandoning the door, I turned to the closest of the two windows, about three feet off the ground. Now that I was next to it, I saw it was boarded up from the inside. I pulled back to look at the second window and found that it was also boarded, which meant that I would have to break through forcefully. I knew my tomahawk would help me, and I was happy that I decided to bring it along. I don't recall every part of the process, but here's how I remember it. First, I used the butt of the tomahawk to smash through the window's glass before ramming it into the boards. I remember being surprised that the wood seemed weaker than I expected, so I flipped the tomahawk around and rammed the blade into the planks. They quickly began to give. It only took a few more slices before I started splitting through them. Using the butt of the tomahawk again, I was able to ram and splinter the remaining planks that I had already weakened, and eventually, I'd gotten through enough of them to make an entry gap. I don't think I got rid of every plank, but again, that wasn't really the issue. Throughout this process, more gunfire was coming from out the front, and the alarm showed no signs of stopping, which made me hope Mateo was distracted enough to put less attention on me. In all honesty, this experience was like an action movie rather than the horror we often must deal with, but it wasn't fun or relaxed. It was just necessary, tense, and scary. My wheelhouse is coping with things that go bump in the night, not with armed arsonist. I scraped aside as much of the broken glass as quickly as possible with the haft of my tomahawk. I clamored, jumped into the window, and dragged myself through. I said in my letter on trolls that the experience in Norway was the first time I had ever been shot at, and while that was still true, I also very much was concerned about it on this occasion. I half expected Matteo to be waiting at the window with his gun raised to give me a full face of lead, but he wasn't. I had landed in a laundry room with a sink, washer, and dryer, as well as a bunch of towels, sheets, and linens. No sign of Matteo, but I could still hear his gunshots coming from the front of the house, and it sounded like he was on the ground floor. I cautiously grabbed my pistol and edged forward to peek around out of the room. Directly across from me was a bathroom where I could see Issa and Ray working on getting through the boards of the window. I didn't rush to find Mateo and ran to the bathroom window to help Ray and Issa get in. I guess now I figured more assistance would be better. Working together, we managed to get those boards out of the way quicker than the first ones, and I helped Ray pull Issa into the house. We all drew out our pistols and started edging forward down the hall. Ahead of us was a living room area with a TV, couches, and a coffee table where there were multiple windows and a door that appeared to be the front entrance to the house. The windows and door were boarded up from the inside as well, and most of the furniture was dragged up to the door, blocking it off. There was no sign of Mateo, even though earlier it seemed like gunshots had been coming from the front door. We were there, and we didn't see him anywhere. The alarms were still going off, but there was no more gunfire until I heard multiple shots from outside. There was a horrendous noise as the bullet smashed into the front door, rattling it. I realized Javier must still have been active outside, and he might have been trying to lay down cover fire for us. That was when we saw Mateo. He ran up to one of the windows where there was a little loophole that he could fire out from. He was carrying an AK-47, and we watched as he approached the window and started firing outwards from it. Realizing now this was our chance, Issa, Ray, and I jumped forward at Mateo. He couldn't turn around in time to face us, and maybe he didn't even know exactly where we were, because it seemed like we took him completely by surprise. I could grab him in a headlock while Issa tried to pinion his arms. He began to struggle, 
but Ray managed to seize his gun and tear it out of his hands while I put as much force onto his head and neck as possible to bring him down. I think Issa somehow kicked the back of his knees out from under him because he dropped suddenly, allowing Ray and Issa to get on top of him and pin him down. He tried for a moment to escape, but there were three people on top of him, not to mention well-trained combat hunters. There was no way he was getting out, and eventually he stopped struggling altogether. Somebody called out to Javier that we had Mateo and that he could come through the windows in the back. Mateo asked if we could at least let him stand up, which was quite reasonable, given that he was underneath several hundred pounds of pressure. Ray picked up the AK and stepped back, and Issa and I hauled Mateo to his feet. With me locking his arms in place behind him, Javier came in a moment later with some thick cords that he brought in to restrain Mateo with. We bound his hands securely behind him. Throughout all of this, he did not resist one time, and eventually we released him and stepped back, weapon still in hand, and ready, but satisfied that we had defused the situation for the moment. Now it was time to talk. What I'm about to retell is greatly sanitized because I know Swamp Dweller has rules about that, and Mateo and Javier both swear a lot. It also is going to be much cleaner in terms of understandability because not only did I not understand most of it, but we had to talk over the still howling alarms, and people were raising their voices and talking over one another for half of it. So it was a bit of a mess. We know what you did, Mateo, Javier told him flatly. Now that things had calmed down, I could get a better look at Mateo. He was lanky and not too tall, clean-shaven with numerous scars across his face and dressed in wrinkled clothing. In other words, he was physically very much the opposite of Javier. He wore a black patch over his left eye, confirming everything we had learned. What did I do? You came after me, broke into my house with these cops, Mateo shouted. We're not cops, Ray told me is what he said, but he was ignored. You shot at us and burned down a whole tract of the woods. We didn't start this, Javier said, and I remember him being very firm as quiet as he could be. He was also making himself heard over the alarms. However, he was still obviously furious, like he was holding himself back, exploding into a rage. And I didn't start it either. Those damn lafes did when they took my eye, Mateo said. What happened? Isa asked. I was cutting wood out of my house and the hatchet shattered. It blew up in a million pieces and flew into my face. Did you see these scars? One of the pieces went right into my eye. The doctors had to remove it. I was lucky I did not die, Mateo said. How do you know the Lafays did it? One of us asked. Because hatchets don't just explode. And a few days before, I saw one of those damn little monkey things, looking down from the branches and laughing at me. They screw with machinery and tools and appliances all the time. I know they did this, Mateo answered, getting increasingly loud and erratic as he tried to get us to believe him. I wasn't entirely sure what to make of the story but I think now that he might have been telling the truth, or at least his version of it. Whether or not the Lafays had somehow sabotaged his hatchet, I can't say for sure, but it's not out of the question. I believed Mateo had indeed experienced the things he had because he had the scars to prove it, at least the hatchet part. Mateo, you killed them. You could have burnt down an entire forest. Isis shouted, You woke up a goddamn Sharufway, and that's why Kalbuko erupted. Ray yelled. Those are kids' stories. I did not set off a volcano. Why would you even think I wanted to do that? Mateo responded. There was a bunch more shouting back and forth that none of us remember or could understand, 
but it was all brought to an abrupt halt when Javier walked forward with a pistol in hand and slammed the butt of the gun into Mateo's temple so hard that we could hear the thump as the blow hit. Javier is a big solid guy, so the blow practically knocked Mateo out cold, and he dropped to the floor in a heap. All of us were shocked because we looked over at Javier, who just had a blank, deadpan expression with haunted-looking eyes. Something felt very wrong here because that had been uncalled for. I know Javier was angry, but I had not expected him to get that aggressive. We weren't getting anywhere with him. I say we get out of here and head back to town. We need to take him before the police get here. When we get back, we call our guys to interfere with the police, figure out about the Sharuf way, and maybe call the watchers, Javier said. We all just blinked and nodded because I don't think we had any better ideas. The police were bound to be here eventually, maybe sooner rather than later. Although this was a relatively rural area, we need to search the house for any additional evidence in case Mateo does not testify. Javier, you should take him out to your truck and keep an eye on him. Please wait for us so we can go back to town together. The rest of us will quickly sweep the house, Ray said. This sounded like a fine idea, although we had to move quickly. We removed the boards from the front door and Javier hauled Mateo over his shoulder to take him to the truck. The loud alarm still would not shut up, but without Mateo we could not deactivate them. In any case, the noise gave us some good cover for what we were about to do next. After Javier left, Ray told Issa and me to hang on for a minute before closing the front door and turning to us. Listen, I feel like we have an obligation right now. We need to report Javier to the Watchers, and we need to do it quickly so that he won't catch on or get away, Ray said. I was surprised that it was him and not Issa suggesting this, but I think Ray was more concerned about the ethical principles and rules since he wasn't as personally connected to this case as Isa. I understood why he suggested this, but at the same time Javier had shown himself more than willing to make up for his information leaking. Without his help, we might not have cracked this case at all or apprehended Mateo. I brought this up, not necessarily because I disagreed with Ray, but because it was just some information we had to consider. It was transparent information, of course, but it was still something to talk about. I don't care. He needs to pay for his hand in this, Issa said firmly. I knew that she was very emotionally invested in this situation and I felt for her, and she was right. Javier did something he shouldn't have done. I agree. If we go by the rules, I guess it's not our decision whether he gets punished or not. The Watchers can determine that, I said after a minute of thought. So it's decided. We report to our guides as soon as we get back and they pass it on to the Watchers. We can also tell them about Mateo when we get back to town and let them decide what to do with him and the Sharuf way, Ray said. It seemed like we were all on the same page, and even though searching the house had mostly been an excuse to have this conversation before we got going, we still thought that it might be wise to try and find any evidence we could. Issa went back to the road to fetch the truck and drive it up to the house so we could quickly get going when we finished while Ray and I started scanning the place. Honestly, I don't even remember what we found there because we didn't turn up anything incriminating, and I mostly remember what happened next. As we were going through the house, Issa burst through the front door and called Ray and me, clearly agitated by something. What happened? Are you okay? We asked her. It's Javier. He's gone. His car wasn't where we parked, and I saw his tracks pulling back out of the grass to the road. I think he's taking Mateo somewhere, Issa told us. My stomach sank. Ever since Javier knocked out Mateo, I had gotten that sense that something was off about our new companion, 
and I felt like we were not going to like what he was going to do next, whatever that was going to be. Where the hell did he go? We told him to wait, Ray said. I still remember getting chills at that moment because a horrible thought occurred to me. Javier was all for giving Mateo a harsh punishment. Do you think he took him to the house to give him to the Sharufway? I thought out loud, questioning the words I was saying. Mateo is his friend, why would he do that? Ray asked. You saw the way he hit him. Maybe he's not going to turn Mateo over to the Sharufway, but he might be going to show him that we have him. I said, it doesn't matter why. I think he probably did go to Mateo's house. We need to get there right now and see if that's what happened, Issa said, putting a firm end to our guessing. With that, we left the alarms raging and practically went sprinting back to the truck. In hindsight, I'm grateful that Javier had not thought to sabotage the vehicle for whatever reason. At the least, he could have slashed the tires, and why he didn't remains a mystery to us. We jumped into Issa's truck and floored it back down the road and thankfully we remembered how to get back to Mateo's house where we had met the Sharufway. As we drove, we debated whether we should go in with guns drawn and ultimately determined to have them ready and see what Javier would do. I remember hoping that we'd made the right call that Javier and Mateo were at the house. The other likely option was that maybe he had gone back to the fire scene, but we had made our choice. Like before, we pulled up right beside the house where we indeed found Javier's truck parked. It was still completely dark and in the headlights we could see through the ruined exterior of the front house of the house. We investigated what I guess was the remains of the kitchen where Javier and Mateo both sat in chairs. Javier looked stern and angry as before and Mateo looked downcast and depressed, although I don't know how much of that was due to him waking up from being knocked out. What are you doing, Javier? Issa asked as we got out of the truck, ready to draw our guns just in case. I couldn't see whether Javier's pistol was in his holster, but both of his hands were empty. Even so, I didn't step too far away from the side of the house so that I could duck behind it and take cover, if it became necessary. Take a guess, he said, although I didn't understand this at the time. I was primarily focused on assessing the parts of the situation that weren't spoken dialogue. Are you three hunters too? Are you as crazy as Javier? Do you believe that there is such thing as a real-life Sharufway? I told you, that stuff is for kids, old Indian stories, Mateo said, clutching his head and speaking unsteadily, likely because he must have been concussed. That's what people say about Lafays, but you still burned a whole group of them to death, Issa hissed. And believe it or not, that was all about what we could say, because just then, the fissure in the earth opened once more. This time, there was no warning like there had been before. There was no earthquake, rattling, or loud warning sound. The ground suddenly split apart, recreating the chasm that had appeared a week earlier. The earth bucked and heaved, rising and falling simultaneously until the heat raced across the area in a crevice that had appeared almost horizontally. The rolling amber eye of the Sharufway opened to stare at us again as before. We were all petrified, but the fear was not quite as overwhelmingly intense as before for me. Although it certainly wasn't weak, only now did the ground start vibrating, the rumbling hum of the Sharufway's low growl. The monster's eye was self-illuminated by an absurdly bright casting spotlight over everything it gazed upon. Why that hadn't been noticeable in the daytime before, I can't say. But now it was like a miniature sun, panning back and forth over the scene like the eye of Sauron from Lord of the Rings. I can't remember who it looked at in what order, but I know it took a second for it to see Mateo. 
When it did, its growl became a full-on roar like nothing I had ever heard before. I can only compare the sound to something like an avalanche, a rock slide, or fittingly enough, a volcanic eruption. Both Ray and Issa tell me that they heard one word amongst the sound, the Sharufwe roaring, Murderer! I never heard it say this myself, but I take their word for it. From the trees came a lot of chatter, as if birds were shouting and crying out. I can only guess that these were Lafays maybe egging on the Sharufwe. They were probably more than happy with what happened next if that's what they were doing. The ground almost directly beneath the house cracked open, and some part of the Sharufwe, probably its claws, split out of the dirt and sunk into Mateo's bottom half and the chair he sat in. He didn't even scream, but I saw the look of abject terror on his face just before he was yanked downwards through the house floor and into the earth. He disappeared into the fissure, and I don't think he even tried to grab the edge or anything. It just happened so fast that he and the rest of us were stunned. It was over in seconds and there wasn't even a blood stain left behind. Javier had panicked and fallen back onto the floor, but the Sharufwe didn't care about him. It had gotten what it came for. Its eye whirled around and settled onto Ray, Issa, and myself, and I heard it say one last thing which Issa later said was spoken in the Mapuche language. Thank you. Then the eye closed and unlike before, everything suddenly seemed to be back as it was. Like our previous encounter with the cryptid, we didn't see the Sharufwe leave, and there was no more smashing of foliage or shaking of the ground. It was over, with only fissures in the background and no Mateo to show for it. We were all shaken, and I don't know what to think. I had somewhat expected the Sharufwe to grab Mateo, but it had appeared out of nowhere, and I had wanted to try to give him a fair trial and sentencing by the Watchers, but you don't always get what you want. I also felt distinctly uncomfortable later when Issa told me the Sharufwe's last words. I don't know if I wanted it to be thanking us like that, and we had been trying to defuse the situation. But I guess there are much worse things to be mistaken for, and I was glad that the Sharufwe had at least struck with the precision only to hit Mateo. Of course, I would not say I liked that he was gone like that, but I was grateful that nobody else had been hurt in the process. Is everyone okay? Issa asked, after things had passed. We all nodded a bit shell-shocked. Holy mother of God! Holy mother of God! Javier kept repeating, still on the floor. You, God damn you, you stay right where you are! Issa growled. It was hands down, the most openly angry and aggressive I had seen her throughout this whole hunt, and it was both terrifying and awesome at the same time. Issa advanced on the house and climbed into it. I thought she was going to slug Javier again, and Ray and I ran after her. I don't even think we made it into the house because instead of hitting Javier, Issa stood over him for a moment and stared at him. I very much remember that he could not meet her eyes for more than a second or two and then Issa stuck out her hand to help Javier to his feet. This considerable guy looked nervous, apprehensive, and all of the above about taking her hand, but eventually he slowly reached out to do so, and she helped haul him to a standing position. Between the darkness and his beard, I could see Javier's expression clearly, but from his posture and what I could make out, he looked worn out, and I could practically see the shame and guilt in his entire body. To this day, I still have mixed thoughts about Javier, his initial leaking of information was not prohibited, but it had led to a horrible consequence. He was entirely willing to help rectify his mistake, but almost too keen because he sacrificed Mateo to the Sharufwe. How close were Javier and Mateo really? 
why would one friend do that to another? It was evident that Javier was a very aggressive and almost vengeful type of... It was evident that Javier was very aggressive and almost vengeful towards Mateo. He had to feel incredibly betrayed, and as I had said before, he was being eaten alive by shame, guilt, and regret, but he was almost troubled beyond that because his response had been so ruthless. Ray, Issa, and I don't have any good answers beyond these theories, and I don't know if we ever really will. As you might imagine, we took Javier back to town. Before, none of the townspeople seemed to have experienced anything related to the Sharuf way. Why they didn't, it's just as much of a mystery as everything else. We got in touch with our guides from our camp just outside town, who contacted the watchers. Javier didn't resist during this, but we monitored him very closely and didn't let him leave the camp. In a couple of days, a pair of capital W watchers showed up dressed in colored shirts, sunglasses, and wide-brimmed hats. They weren't quite the men in black you see in the movies, but they were intimidating, nonetheless. Without much formality, they spirited Javier away, and the haunted look in his eyes was the last we ever saw of him. I wish I could tell you what became of him, but I never found out. Issa may have more info on this than she operated in the area he previously did, but she never revealed anything to Ray or me as far as I know. And that was it. Maybe a bit anticlimactic, and there are still many more lingering questions, but ultimately I'm just grateful that everything has been wrapped up. And I was incredibly relieved that we didn't have to go toe-to-toe with the Sharuf way. I'm sure you can guess who would have come out on top in that confrontation. I doubt anything short of a tank or a rocket launcher would even scratch that mobile volcano. Shortly after this, Iso, Ray, and I went back to Ray's farm in Brazil to take a break and decompress after the intensity and trauma. And those days were a pleasant time. But all things must end. So after a while, I said my goodbyes and headed back to the United States. Of course, I had plenty more adventures since then, but those are stories for another time. Hopefully you guys are satisfied with this one. I say this because as I've said, this is probably my final letter. I don't know if this is goodbye forever, but you heard everything I said up front. I have a family that is changing drastically here, and I'm going to have my hands full. So, I'll be heading out. But before I do, I want to say thank you one last time. As often, as I often go on about these letters, they are beneficial to me as a form of writing therapy, and I'm grateful for the chance to share my experiences and knowledge with the audience here in the swamp. Your support has also been excellent. I usually read all of your comments. Your positive energy and well wishes are appreciated by not just me, but by everyone on my end. Serena, my family, in the future, maybe even Rain. I am so grateful for each one of you. It's been a wonderful experience writing for you guys. That's all I've got for now. So I'll quit getting emotional and let you get on with things. Thank you again, everyone. Peace and love to you all. And this has been Sam White Owl, signing out. It's been two years and 19 letters, and me and Sam White Owl have finally come to an end at least for now, to this journey. I want to send much love and so much thanks to Sam White Owl for writing these incredibly detailed, incredibly long, and enthralling stories for two years now. We originally agreed on 10 letters, and here we are with 19. It's absolutely insane. Much love to all of you guys in the swamp who tuned in every single episode. I don't think we've ever had a series on the channel maintain such a high viewership all the way to the end of the series. 
Very soon, as I mentioned on my social media, me and Sam White Owl do have a new video coming soon where he is going to be listening to encounters sent in by you guys and giving you his best professional guess as to what you guys encountered and a little bit of information on that cryptid. Very soon, a full series upload of every single letter will be coming soon. Thank you guys again. Be sure to hit that like button if you haven't. The more likes this gets, the more YouTube promotes it, and that helps more people discover the Sam White Owl legacy. Be sure to subscribe if you're new, and turn on notifications to never miss a new upload, as I upload them nearly every single day. And I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.